Hello, um, my name is Emily. I'm a third year political science student at the University of Toronto and welcome to my podcast. Um, on the off chance that you don't already know, uh, this podcast is part of a class project um, that's designed to shed light on little known women in the history of political thought. Um, so for my subject, I have chosen a French mathematician and philosopher, Emily Duchatelet, um, who is also famous for being the longtime girlfriend of um, well-known poet Voltaire. So Emily was born on December 17th, 1706. Um, her father was a high-ranking official in the court of Louis XIV, um, and it was clear from early on that she had a quick mind and a determined nature. Uh, she had five brothers, three of which survived to adulthood. She also had an illegitimate half-sister on her father's side. She spoke six languages. She was educated, educated in math and science, along with all of the usual accomplishments. Um, and this was due to the encouragement of her father and of the scientists and mathematicians that would be entertained frequently at her house um, due to her family's status as French aristocrats. So essentially, she had an extremely privileged upbringing and a very specific set of circumstances that allowed her intellect to thrive. This was extremely unique among, among women of her time, especially considering that the king's own daughters at this point were completely illiterate. In addition to her academic pursuits, she had been a bit of a tomboy growing up. Um, she had been allowed to climb trees, learn to fence and ride horses, uh, like and with the boys. So she knew that she would have to get married one day. Uh, at that time, marrying age was around 18 or 19, but she would only marry on her terms. So uh, David Bodanis, who wrote a book about the relationship and scholarship of Emily and Voltaire, um, he claims that at 16, Emily was so beset with suitors that she wasn't interested in that she challenged one to a duel. Apparently, they went to one of the big buildings at Versailles and she stripped down to her petticoats, picked up a sword, and had a genuine duel. Of course, she didn't kill the man and he didn't kill her, so it was kind of a draw. Afterwards, she put her sword down, lifted up analytic geometry by Descartes, and walked away, uh, making her preferences clear. On a separate occasion, when she was barred from entrance to the Café Grandot, which was a common place where men gathered for intellectual debate when she attempted to join one of her teachers. Instead of getting upset about it, she just went and had some men's clothing made for herself, came back, walked right in. So these acts mark an ongoing theme in her life. Emily was certainly aware of societal norms and the expectations that were placed on her as a woman of high birth. And in general, she obeys them. And yet she also tends to behave as she pleases. Essentially, she behaves as if she was a man, and she's smart enough, and her and her family are important enough in the French aristocracy for her to get away with it. She eventually did get married uh, in 1725 to the uh, Marquis Florent Claude du Châtelet Lomont. Uh, she was 18 years old, and her husband was 34. She didn't marry for love, uh, but she was far from unhappy. She wrote of her husband that he is the most respectable and esteemable man that I know. The union benefited both families, uh, and Emily was happy enough that her husband cared little about her intellectual and amorous pursuits, and essentially, once her marriage duties, aka the bearing of children, and providing of an heir were complete, let her do her own thing. 
Uh, Emily had three children with her husband. She had two sons and one daughter. One son died when he was a baby. Um, and their marriage was essentially a good business deal, uh, which was common among noble families at the time and seemed to work out well for all parties involved. She stayed with her husband for five years. Uh, she traveled with him for his military and his political careers. Um, and then eventually, in 1730, she settles in Paris to continue her intellectual pursuits and live the life of a French socialite. And this is where things start to get interesting. So after she has a brief affair with the Duc de Richelieu, I'm probably saying that wrong, but it is what it is, uh, she eventually meets and begins a romantic relationship with Francois-Marie Arouette de Voltaire, who we all know as Joseph Voltaire. That uh, starts in about 1733 and goes on to influence and to some extent define the rest of her life. So they both believed that they were the other's soulmate, romantically and intellectually. Voltaire actually wrote in one of his poems about when he met her, um, and I'm just going to read that. It says, uh, Why did you only reach me so late? What happened to my life before? I hunted for love, but found only mirages. I found only the shadow of our pleasure. You are a delight. You are tender. What pleasure I find in your arms. So around the time that they meet, there's a bit of drama in Voltaire's life. Um, basically, he gets threatened with arrest by the monarchy because in his work, he's critical of French society and French politics. Um, and the result of this is that he's got to leave Paris pronto. So he finds himself in need of a place to hide out. Um, and Emily happens to have this chateau that they're not using because it's in a bit of a state of disrepair. Um, and Emily didn't have the money to fix it because she spent all of her money on books and tutors. Um, but Voltaire did. Uh, so the deal was that he would invest the money into keeping up the chateau and that the Marquis, who was Emily's husband, um, could use the chateau anytime he wanted for hunting and leisure. Um, and Emily and Voltaire were free to live as they please, away from the prying eyes of Parisian society. Um, as a side note, she apparently had a penchant for gambling and was usually successful, uh, given her talent with numbers and math. But instead of using her money on her house, uh, she used the money she won to buy books and laboratory equipment. Um, so due to her change of location and the encouragement of Voltaire, Emily begins an important transition here from Parisian socialite to serious academic. She's excluded from the inner circles of math and science in Paris due to her status as a woman, but she circumvents this issue by simply inviting all of the same people she would interact with in Paris to her house. In this way, she and Voltaire establish a sort of colony of intellectuals. Uh, they welcome visitors and house guests, provided that they don't interfere with uh, the host's important work. So apparently it was understood that neither host would be available to entertain guests during the day. Uh, guests included important mathematicians, scientists, and philosophers of their time, um, including Madame de Graffigny, who describes their accommodations as modest but luxurious, and at times expressed her own admiration and jealousy of Emily's intelligence and accomplishments. 
<clears throat> so this arrangement lasts from 1734 to 1749, which is the same year Emily dies. This is also the time when she produced most, if not all, of her most important intellectual work. So Emily is known generally as a mathematician and a translator. However, she also made contributions to philosophy, science, and while she didn't contribute directly to the arts, she was certainly involved in the work of Voltaire, inspiring some of his greatest achievements in poetry and prose. Most notably, um, Emily was responsible for the French version of Isaac Newton's Principia, which is still in regular, regular use today. In addition to a translation, Emily offers a commentary on Newton's thesis and an explanation which gave her readers four different ways to understand Newton's ideas. In undertaking this project, she established her place amongst only a handful of scholars of her time who had even the ability to understand Newton's theory enough to communicate it in a more direct and accessible way. She completed the translation in 1745, but continued to labor over the commentary for years until finally in 1749, worried that she would die without having finished it, she worked feverishly and completed her project a week before she died on September 10th of complications from childbirth. It was eventually published in 1759, 10 years after her death. So in addition to this, she was also influential in the field of natural science. Uh, she collaborated with Voltaire on a study of the nature and the propagation of fire which was the topic of the Royal Academy of Sciences prize competition in 1738. As a result of this study, uh, Voltaire concluded that fire consisted of particles that having mass and weight obeyed Newton's laws of attraction. Now, now in 2021, we know that that's not true. Emily thought that wasn't true at the time. Um, so instead of his conclusions, she advocated her own idea of fire as a form of what we would call energy, which now we know is correct. Um, she secretly submitted her own essay to the competition with the help of her husband, since as a woman, she was barred from membership to the Scientific Academy. Um, neither she or Voltaire won the competition. However, Voltaire was insistent about his essay being published alongside the winners. And when Emily told him that she had also submitted an essay, he was equally insistent that hers be submitted as well. Ultimately, the Academy published a limited run of five essays, the three winners, Voltaire's, and Emily's. So her magnum opus is something called the Institution de Physique, um, which was in part a response to Voltaire's recently published Elements of the Philosophy of Newton, um, which she considered to be too narrow in its scope. She complained that it offered no reasoning for how and why the phenomenon of attraction worked as it did, instead relying on references to God and an ethereal medium that filled the universe. Instead, she offered a mathematical explanation. Um, this publication is what would earn Emily her place in the elite intellectual France, um, and also her acceptance in the Academy of Sciences of the Institute of Bologna in 1746. Um, other notable works of hers include a variety of biblical commentary. Uh, she wrote a discourse on happiness, which was a common pastime of intellectual men at this time, um, and a multitude of letters to various friends and acquaintances that reveal intimate things about her personal life and her thoughts on a variety of subjects. 
So as a translator, she's best known for her edition of The Fable of the Bees, which was a book by Dutch Anglo social philosopher Bernard Mandeville that was intended to challenge some of the most important ideas at the time concerning social morality and religious ethics. Mandeville argued that rather than focus on the glory of God and self-sacrifice, it was actually through men pursuing their material self-interest, including greed and human pleasure, that all improvements in society would come about. Essentially, that private vice would eventually lead to public benefit. For the most part, Emily agrees with him. Aside from uh, one addition, which is her inclusion of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, um, which contradicts Mandeville's thesis. Um, she, Emily says that she chose this particular work because it was, in her words, the best book of morality ever done. But she also thought that an English text, as this one was, could and should be altered to suit a French audience, given the cultural differences between the two countries. She made efforts to translate Mandeville's thoughts and intentions as opposed to an entirely faithful word-for-word -word version, which resulted in a translation that was half translation and half commentary. Um, however, in a departure from other prominent translators of her time, she marked the places where she was speaking in her own voice with quotation marks so they wouldn't be confused with Mandeville's own ideas. The most interesting aspect of Emily's version of the Fable of the Bees for our purposes is her translator's preface. It is here that Emily writes for really the only time about the status of women in society and what her recommendations might be to solve what she acknowledges is an issue. So Emily was a lot of incredible things. She was a wife, a mother, a mathematician, a scientific genius, she was a child prodigy, a philosopher, and a writer, but she was not a feminist. She didn't advocate for the emancipation of women, she didn't petition anyone for the right to vote. On the contrary, at times she admonished other women for being too caught up in what she calls frivolities, like spending all of their attention on their hair and their clothes. She was even called ugly by some women of her day who attacked her plain clothes and her not styled hair, although I sincerely doubt that these remarks bothered her very much since she would probably have considered those women vain. Um, she was far too preoccupied with her work to take any particular pains with her appearance. Um, in the translator's preface, she certainly acknowledges that women face barriers in accessing education, but she also doesn't think that this is a problem for most women, because she isn't sure that most women have either the natural aptitude or the appropriate situation for higher levels of education. Um, for example, in her Discourse on Happiness, Emily is sure to mention that she's only really writing for who she calls people of quality, by which she means people who are born with a fortune already made. In the preface, Emily expresses her frustration that women are entirely excluded from the sciences. She calls it one of the con contradictions of this world which has always astonished me. She goes on to call the lack of available education to women akin to cutting out half of humanity, and claims that if she were king, she would allow women to share in all the rights of humanity, and most of all, those of the mind. For a moment, it seems like she might be preparing to make a favorable assessment of women and of their rightful place in the world. Unfortunately, her motivating reason for the education of women is to make them more valuable beings, which would ultimately benefit men, because if the women they talk to are smarter, 
then they would be compelled to be smarter, presumably to retain their rightful intellectual advantage over women. She claims to be convinced by her own experience that most women are either ignorant, prejudiced, or lack a bold spirit, and she congratulates herself on renouncing the frivolous things that she claims occupy most women for their entire lives, and thus neglecting the cultivation of their souls. She claims that nature has refused her and presumably all other women, the creative genius that she sees in someone like Voltaire, um, so she settles for the art of translation. So, no, Emily du Chatelet was not a feminist, but should that take away from her incredible accomplishments and contributions to science and to math? It seems to me that Emily wasn't a feminist because she didn't have to be. At first, she was incredibly privileged. Being born into an established family of the French aristocracy, being the only daughter of a father who encouraged her to study and let her climb trees and ride horses with the boys. She married a man who essentially let her do as she pleased, as long as the minimum level of decorum was maintained for the sake of appearances. These were all really unusual things for a woman of her time period. Secondly, she was a genius. And not a for-her-time genius or for a woman of her time genius, she was just a genius. It makes sense that she wouldn't feel like most women were capable of the same intellectual rigor as she was, because they weren't. She was, by all accounts, special. The special status gave her the ability to go out in the world and behave as if she was a man. If a club excluded her, she simply went out and bought men's clothes. If a publication excluded her, she could rely on her husband and or Voltaire to advocate for her inclusion. And they were important enough for that to work. Of course, the men knew she was still a woman, but once they figured out how smart she was, and as long as appearances were maintained, they treated her just the same as any other man. Further proof of her singularity are the circumstances under which she died. So the jury is out on whether it was Emily or Voltaire who was the first one to have an affair, but they both did. Voltaire with his niece on his sister's side, Emily with uh, the Marquis de Saint Laurent, who was a soldier poet uh, who was much younger than she was. And apparently he was kind of a bad guy, um, but based on her letters, she was head over heels in love with him. And her relationship with Voltaire, while it was definitely changed, remained almost as close as it ever was. When she was 42, she became pregnant with the Marquis de Saint Laurent's child. She was afraid that this pregnancy would prove to be fatal, which it did, so she worked ceaselessly to finish her commentary on Newton's Principe and entrusted it to Voltaire to be published in the event that she did not survive. Her death on September 10th was closely followed by that of her baby. When she died, all three men were at her bedside, her husband, Voltaire, and Saint Laurent. And just to give you an idea of how heartbroken Voltaire was and how he saw her, I'm going to read a response he wrote to a friend who had inquired about his well-being. So on October 14th, which is a month and four days after she died, he says, My dear boy, a woman who translated Virgil, who translated and simplified Newton, and yet was perfectly unassuming in conversation and manner, a woman who never spoke ill of anyone and never uttered a lie, a constant and fearless friend, in a word, a great man, whom other women only thought of in connection with diamonds and dancing. For such a woman as this, you cannot prevent my grieving all my life. I am very far from going to Prussia. I can hardly leave the house. 
I am much touched by your kindness. I have need of it. So yes, Emily du Chatelet was not a feminist. In fact, I doubt very much that the plight of women in general ever crossed her mind, except in the context of access to and inclusion in scientific communities. But even being as privileged and as smart as she was, she was unable to escape her gender and has spent most of history being remembered only as Voltaire's assistant. Her translations have been attributed to men who had a cursory role at most, and her contributions to our modern day understanding of the concepts of energy and of the work of Isaac Newton was all but forgotten until relatively recently. So I guess my point is that just because she didn't fight for the emancipation of women does not make her contributions to society and to science any less important than the contributions of someone like Mary Astell or like Bell Hooks, or her ideas any less worthwhile in the study of women in political thought. Just by existing, she proved that women are capable of the same exceptional intelligence that men are. The challenge that we find ourselves in now is finding ways to include and to encourage women without forcing them to become like men, like Emily had to. Thanks so much for listening.